The first 18 verses here in chapter 11 are a continuation of the story of Cornelius converting to Christ. If you were here last week, you recall that. Uh, chapter 10 was all about the fact that the Gentiles have received the gospel, that the, the gospel is for the Gentiles also. And this again points to the fact that this is a huge matter. The fact that all of chapter 10 um, was about the conversion of Cornelius. And now the first 18 verses of chapter 11 and the remaining part of chapter 11, most of it has to do with the conversion of the Gentiles. And this is a huge matter because it shows again that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, for all men, which for the Jewish mind was very difficult for them to accept. So why don't we stand up? We'll read verses 1 through 3 and then we'll pray. The scripture reads in Acts 11, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them? May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is, The Gospel Continues to Spread. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in you and thank you for this time that we have in your word. We ask that you would use it for good, that you would help me to set it forth, and that your Holy Spirit would be ministering to the hearts and minds of men as it's preached. Do a great work to equip your saints that they might go from this place and do the work of the ministry in the earth, that they would be solid in doctrine, sound in the faith, proclaimers, heralders of your gospel. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. So, like, are we good here with the lights? Um, we could tone it down, kind of give it the feel of the whispering weasel. Can um, listen to Jim on the mambo at the whispering weasel. Um, <laughs> I told Claire, if I ever owned a nightclub, it would be called the whispering weasel. I think people would come just because of the name. <laughs> so, Everyone's always wanted to hear a weasel whisper, right? So it's like, anyhow. In our last sermon, I talked about what a huge matter this was. The gospel being for the Gentiles also. You may recall that. Some of you are like, he's talking about that again. (laughs) It's like, he pounded that into our heads last week. And that's been the theme, a big theme throughout the book of Acts, you may have noticed. I talked about how difficult it was for the Jewish mind to believe, accept, and embrace the idea that the gospel was for non-Jews. Very difficult for the Jews to accept that. Even the Jewish believers in Christ, difficult for them to accept. This is a huge transition of thought. And here at the very beginning of chapter 11, we encounter the difficulty yet again, here in verses 1 through 3. You have to remember the Jewish mindset that they were to keep themselves separate from the Gentiles. Even those Gentiles that converted to Judaism, they were to remain separated from. They weren't to eat with them. They weren't even to worship with them. Remember the court of the Gentiles? That's where all the Gentiles went. And worship with the Jewish, Jewish people. 
This teaching, which was all-encompassing for the Jews, it is what the Jew had been taught all his life by his Jewish teachers, taught all his life by the whole Jewish culture, taught all his life that this is what God expected, that he remained separate from the Gentiles, was a huge difficulty for the early Jewish believers to overcome. Hence this whole huge deal of chapter 10, chapter 11, all these preliminary things from the very beginning in Acts 1-8 where Jesus told them that they would take his gospel to the ends of the earth, all pointing to this fact that the gospel is for all men. This is a major deal to the Jewish mind. Hence this large segment of scripture on the matter of the divine hand of the Lord and orchestrating this whole matter with the vision and all that. And here Peter is confronted with this difficulty upon his return to Jerusalem, this difficulty for the Jewish mind. He's confronted with it again here in Acts chapter 11. There were those who contended with him, verse 3 there, there were those who contended with him, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Have you ever been questioned by a demagogue? It can be overwhelming. Demagogues are awful people. And here you have the demagogues gathering around, thinking Peter, questioning his leadership, his authority, thinking he's messed up, he's not as holy as we are. We're circumcised. These Gentiles aren't. Of course, Paul's response to that was, why don't you basically just cut the whole thing off? Because if circumcising makes you holy, then you'll really be holy if you just castrate yourself. This is essentially what he said in Galatians. Here Peter is confronted with this whole difficulty the Jewish mind had in accepting the gospel was for the Gentiles also. The early Jewish believers brought their thinking from their Judaism into their Christianity. And of course, their thinking in this regard was unbiblical. God always wanted to win all the peoples of the earth unto himself. The Jews had wrongly made themselves better than all other men and separated themselves from all other men. In the Old Testament, the Lord used a racial geographical people, namely the Jews, to point all men unto himself. And in the New Testament, the Lord is his people made up of all tribes and tongues, going out in the highways and byways to point all men unto himself. But whether Old Testament or New Testament, it was never just a Jewish thing. The goal has never changed, Old Testament or New Testament. It has always been to win all peoples unto himself. Just the mode of how this is done has changed from Old Testament to New Testament. From a stationary racial geographical people to a people made up of all tribes, tongues, who aren't stationary and go out all over. But this mindset of separation, and it's just a Jewish thing, became and was pervasive in Judaism even at this time. Totally pervasive. Look at chapter 22 of Acts, if you could. Turn there. We had just seen the interposition of the civil magistrates on behalf of the Christians in chapter 21. And we'll eventually get there. And the magistrates actually let Paul speak to the people, and the people actually listened to him, got quiet and listened to him. But what I want you to notice is they listened 
only until he spoke of going to the Gentiles. They only listened to Paul until he spoke of going to the Gentiles. Then it was over with. Look at verse 17 of chapter 22 of Acts. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem. This is Paul sharing his testimony, his life. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him coming to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So surely what Paul's saying to the Lord is, surely they're going to listen to me because of what I was as he's preaching here. Then he said to me, that's what the Lord said to Paul, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And then look what the narrative says, verse 22. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air. This is how they... The Jewish mindset could not embrace, accept, or deal with the idea that the gospel was for the Gentiles also. The Jewish mindset, what they had received in Judaism, was so deep within them. And you see the response here from those in Judaism. They cannot stand the things of God being for the Gentiles. It's for the Jews. You know, the Gentiles get a few crumbs. It's for us. So this is a huge transition of thought that the Gentiles can be part of the people of God, that the gospel is for them also, very difficult for the early Jewish believers to accept. This is the mindset of the Jew. It was deep. The Gentiles are not part of the people of God. What God has for man is for the Jew alone, or at least him first, others being second-class citizens. They were to be separate from the Gentiles. Yes, there were proselytes to Judaism, but even then, they eat separately. They worship separately. They are second-class citizens. Nothing like what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that the Gentiles and Jews are one new man of God. Very difficult for the Jewish mind to accept. So Peter tells them the whole story. Luke found it important to repeat the whole matter in this narrative. Everything that was just said in chapter 10, Peter's going to repeat from his perspective in chapter 11. Yet the account here in chapter 11 is more compelling because it's done in the first person by Peter himself. So let's go through here, verses 4 through 17 of chapter 11. It says, but Peter explained it to them, to these people who are like, what are you thinking? You're with the Gentiles, eating with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance. I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. 
When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. God had to divinely intervene for them to get this, to accept this. Intervene in the affairs of men this intrusively, so to speak, in order to get them to realize this is of God. The gospel is for the Gentiles too. So it's all done three times. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompany me. Those witnesses who were there in Joppa, they were with Peter back here in Jerusalem. He knew the importance of having witnesses to what he was saying. Accompany me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house. So you got the Spirit talking to Peter. You got an angel in Cornelius' house. You have a vision taking place with the Lord speaking to Peter. This is big. Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Talking about when the Holy Spirit was outpoured back in Acts 2. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? He actually comes to Peter and says, I I would be fighting against God. This is God's doing. The fact that This gospel is for the Gentiles. This isn't something I made up. This is God showing us clearly that it's for all men, even as Jesus did when he was recorded in the gospels, even as we've seen many opportunity, many places within the book of Acts pointing to this fact, now it's all revealed. It is for the Gentiles too. Massively big. So it says here, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. They're finally getting it. They're finally getting it. They were silent, yet they gave thanks to God. They were still processing all this. There were some who got it more than others got it. They were thinking the gospel is Gentiles too? This is huge to them. And we know this matter continued to be an ongoing dispute and problem within the early church. This thing about the gospel being for the Gentiles also. We know that it was an ongoing problem and dispute from the book of Acts itself as Luke's narrative continues, which will come to a head in Acts 15, which we will look at. And we also... No, this was a continued problem and dispute from the epistles Paul wrote. Many of Paul's epistles address this matter of Jew and Gentile conflict. 
Now in verses 19 through 26, the scriptures cover how the gospel was spreading to the Gentiles in other areas during this same time. So let's go through 19 through 26. Verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Why? Because these early Jewish believers thought the gospel was only for the Jews. It was the pervasive thinking that they had to overcome because of their Judaistic roots. Understand? Notice that this verse starts the very same way as chapter 8 starts. Before we go into Philip bringing the gospel to the Samaritans and the conversion of Cornelius and the Gentiles, look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now Saul was consenting to his death, talking about Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Chapter 11, here in verse 19, starts out talking about the very same thing. The persecution of Stephen. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So this didn't happen subsequent to Samaria and subsequent to Cornelius. This happened concurrent with those things. These believers scattered all over the place, including these areas mentioned here. Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. But they were only preaching to the Jews. Only. Now, it says in verse 20, But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, or to the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. Preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, you have to understand, Antioch became huge to the early Christian church. Up until this point, Jerusalem was big, and Jerusalem would always remain big to the early church. But at this point, Antioch is totally on the map. Totally. In Christian history, apart from Jerusalem, no other city of the Roman Empire played as large a part in the life of the early church as Antioch of Syria. It was the home base of Paul's outreach to the eastern half of the empire. It was the place believers were first named Christians. It was the place where the dispute about whether the Gentile converts had to be circumcised or not and other Jewish customs arose. It was the birthplace of foreign missions, Acts 13. And it had among its teachers Barnabas, Paul, and Peter in the first century, Ignatius and Theophilus in the second century, and Lucian, Theodore, and Chrysostom at the end of the third century. Antioch was an important site for early Christian history. What those Christian believers set up there was huge. It was the home base of the mission to the Gentiles. And we're seeing it unfold right here, why it became the home base of the mission to the Gentiles here in chapter 11. 
Antioch was founded in Syria in 300 B.C. by Seleucus Nicator, who named it after his father or son, whose names were Antiochus. It sat on the Orontes River about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So the persecution sent Christians scattering a very long distance. 300 miles away, these people were. During apostolic times, it was after Rome and Alexandria, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, boasting about 500,000 people. Very cosmopolitan, priding itself in its technology, academia, sophistication, and culture, and it was also very decadent. All manner of depraved behavior could be found there. So depraved that the Romans even wrote about it. (laughs) The city ceased to exist in 540 A.D., just before the Muslims came on the scene, when it was sacked by the Persians. We would know them as Iranians. The city now there in our day is called Antikia and only has about 35,000 people in it. It goes on here in verse 21, and it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So here at Antioch, they're preaching the gospel to Gentiles, and many of them are believing. All concurrent with what's going on over with Cornelius, with the Samaritans, with Philip, the gospel spreading everywhere because of persecution. Persecution would be a good thing. Doesn't feel good at the time, but yeah, people aren't going to give up their homes and their lattes and just march off and spread the gospel, generally speaking. But if there's persecution, they'll leave. (laughs) They'll go to other places where the Lord wants the gospel taken. And that's what happened there. Verse 22 says, Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. News of what things? That they're preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and that the Gentiles are turning to the Lord. News of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch, 300 miles away. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart. They should continue with the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas goes to check out what's going on here with Gentiles having the gospel preached to them and turning to the Lord. And now he's doing the same thing. He's pointing them to the Lord. He's encouraged those who already believe in the faith and he's being used of the Lord to add others to the body of Christ. Why send Barnabas? Why did the church want to look into this? Why did the church of Jerusalem... Why were they concerned about this? Why did they want to lurk into this? This matter of the Gentiles believing the gospel. Because again, their whole Jewish mindset, is this really true? That the gospel could be for the Gentiles also? That they too could become part of the people of God? And there were also other things that concerned the early Jewish believers. One, for instance is this. If the Gentiles are allowed into the church, it would be viewed by the Jews, the the Jews that weren't messianic, that didn't believe in Christ, 
If Gentiles are allowed into the church, it would be viewed by the Jews as an attack upon Judaism as their customs would not be followed by the Gentiles. There would most likely be persecution of the Christian believers from the Jews because of breaking with the traditions of Judaism, like not eating with Gentiles and getting uncircumcised. And getting circumcised, pardon me. They had already seen this with numerous encounters early on. This would push the hardcore enthusiasts, to say it in a nice way, of Judaism against them. So that was a concern to the early church. This could cause us to be viewed as not part of Judaism anymore. And that wouldn't go well with us because then the Jews will use the arm of the state to persecute us. Secondly, if the Christian church was viewed as separate from Judaism, the early church would no longer be viewed by the Romans as possessing religio liceta. In other words, they would no longer be viewed as a legal religion. Judaism was a legal religion, but Christianity would lose that protection as a legal religion if viewed as not a legitimate part of Judaism. So these were big concerns to the early churchmen there in Jerusalem. They're grappling with this whole idea. Can the Gentiles truly be part of the people of God? The gospel's for them too. And then they have these other concerns. What will the Jews do to us? What will the Romans do to us? Surely these two things caused some within the early church on a practical level to question and dispute the gospel being for the Gentiles also. You can see it happening. It goes on and it says in verse 25, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Why did Barnabas seek Saul? I love this, these little two verses because I've had this happen in my life so many times and I've witnessed it in other people's lives so many times. Why did Barnabas seek Saul? Think of that. That's what he did. The Gentiles are being converted to the Lord and he wants to seek out Saul. He sought him because he already had an understanding that the gospel was for all men. Barnabas sought out Saul because he knew that Saul already had an understanding that the gospel was for all men and had already been conducting mission to the Gentiles. Whenever we come to a revelation about something regarding the things of God, we then seek out others who we know or think we know already know something about that revelation. Therefore, Barnabas wanted Paul at Antioch. You got that? And that's huge. When God's revealed things to me that I didn't see before, I really look for men who already understood these things and see what they had to get as much from them as I possibly can. And I've I've seen people do it. People realize things that I realized a long time ago, come and want to know my thoughts on a certain matter. Having understood that revelation for a while. 
That's why Barnabas wanted Paul. He wanted to get as much of that understanding as possible. Think of what exciting days those were. Barnabas, Paul together, teaching the people for a whole year. They would later conduct the first foreign mission ever in the history of the early church known to man as laid out in Acts 13. It was Paul and Barnabas. This was the height of the relationship as brothers with similar mission. But remember also, their relationship would end over a dispute. And many people go, how did Paul and Barnabas end at each other's throats? Especially over something that didn't seem that worth being at each other's throats over. I've seen this so many times in my many years now. It has gone on over and over, many thousands of times over the history of the Christian church. Where good men break with each other. Sometimes over completely complete nonsense, sometimes over a misunderstanding, sometimes because one of the two becomes a whack job. Okay? But I've watched it over and over again. But listen to me now. Never take away from the exciting days. Those are exciting days. When God knits the hearts of men together with similar mission to do a a work for him in the earth. Those were exciting days in Antioch when Paul and Barnabas and the other brethren were there and the church was being built at Antioch. Exciting days. The gospel was continuing to spread everywhere to the Gentiles. Brothers were banding together in mission. The last four verses of chapter 11, talk about a prophet named Agabus and a famine. It says, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So here we have a prophet, and this was to be, after many years of no prophets, a 400-year hiatus, the Messianic age was to once again see the office of prophet revived and the gift of prophecy in action. And here you have this prophet named Agabus. When it talks there about throughout all the world, a famine throughout all the world. It didn't mean literally all the world. It was a term that was commonly used regarding the Roman Empire. All the known world, you know, within the Roman Empire. There was no known great famine over the entire Roman Empire at that time that we know of. There were bad harvests and famine conditions reported in various areas subsequent to this prophecy. And there was a severe famine in Palestine. Hence the need for help to the believers in Judea. 
Palestine suffered a severe, from 45 to 47, very severe famine. Hence, why it was determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This is a common trait of Christians down through the centuries to help their brothers and sisters in need. To help our brothers and sisters in need. Common trait of Christianity. And notice the accountability factor. It was taken to the elders in Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Not by Mutt and Jeff, but by Barnabas and Saul. Accountability matters. This common trait of Christians down through centuries to help their brothers and sisters in need, and not only them, but also to help those in need outside the household of faith, has been something that government officials have wanted to replicate through the arm of the state down through the centuries. Going all the way back to Julian the Apostate, back in the 300s, you know, he was after Constantine. Christianity was growing throughout the empire. He wanted to take them back to the status hell they had come out of. And he saw that the Christians cared for each other, and he saw how people were being won to Christ through the benevolence that Christians showed people. It gave people pause, moment to listen to the gospel, to hear the truth of God's word. He wanted the state to take that over. And that's what he did. He implemented all kinds of welfare programs in order to win the allegiance of the people away from Jesus Christ and to the state, to Rome. And status scum have done that all the centuries since, including up into our day. That's why you should not just go and eat out of their trough and grovel for their crumbs because their desire is to win your allegiance to them rather than to him. And that's why I've always been strong on that. The status hell that we live presently live in needs to be dismantled. The problem is, once everyone's eating out of the cookie jar, which all Americans are eating out of the cookie jar now, it becomes impossible to dismantle. I remember even seeing Stossel, the dude from whatever, 2020 or whatever, John Stossel, went out and interviewed all these people who were the government's too big and they're funding everything and we have to quit all this government funding. But guess what? Except the parts that they were getting benefit from. They didn't want those parts of the government funding dismantled. It becomes a vicious thing and the only thing that ends it is when it feeds on itself to death. Just read history. And that's where we're at. It will feed on itself to death. Right now, the corporations and wealth is so huge, they can keep it all afloat, this welfare hellhole we live in. It will collapse. You can always count on man to destroy himself. It's part of the created order. God's designed it such. Just read history. He always does it to himself. Wealth and ease just brings it out in him. His decadence, his evil, 
his destruction. I love reading the humanists. So maybe we'll be different this time. They acknowledge the history of man. Maybe we'll be different this time. No, we won't be. It's as predictable as the sun is coming up tomorrow morning. Man will destroy himself and his wealth and ease. He's incapable of living right with his wealth and ease. I have this uh, quote here from John of Salisbury. I was all ticked off this morning. I made the fatal mistake of looking at the news before I came to church. And a uh, big story on Fox News, the red flag law, about a, a, a Marine who had all his weapons taken away out in Oregon by the FBI's behest over a state law. Oregon's one of the eight states that have red flag laws where if someone makes a report about you, you can have your guns taken away. Ex parte hearing, you don't even get to meet your accusers. They come and swarm your house. You don't even know they're coming. People have already been murdered by the government because all of a sudden people are breaking into their home at 6 in the morning, SWAT teams, and they try to defend themselves, not knowing it's the police. And then two weeks later, then you get to go to a hearing and see if you can get your guns back. Good luck with that. Guess what? Every judge on the planet's going to grant that because he doesn't want to be the guy who doesn't grant it, and then somebody goes out and kills a bunch of people five days later, right? So this guy had his guns taken away because he spoke against Antifa. Antifa, who actually does great physical harm to many people and promulgates terroristic actions, all of whom none of them have lost their guns, this guy who says he would defend himself, protect himself, and slaughter the Antifa in self-defense, he said, gets his guns taken away, gets put in a mental hospital for 20 days, still doesn't have his guns back. That's what I call crossing of the Rubicon by our government. Once they disarm you, you are at their mercy. You're at the mercy of the government, and you're at the mercy of the statist dogs, like Antifa. That should bother you. But I guarantee you, it won't bother 99% of the pulpits in America today. They're okay with sodomy everywhere. They're okay with little innocent babies being butchered. They're okay with all the filth that's been promulgated across this country, with their silence. So I was reading this John of Salisbury I've talked about Polycraticus. Probably most of you still haven't read it. Jason isn't here, so I won't even ask. So one person can raise their hand. But listen, here's what he said of the churchmen. He has a whole section on the churchmen of his day. And it wasn't a glowing report. Okay, this is 1159. It is worth reading. Here's one thing he said which made me think immediately of the churchmen of of our day. He said, For there is no spirit of liberty, of independence in them to lift up their voices against the powers of the world. No valor to protect the truth in time of danger. So long as they prosper in their own concerns, 
So long as they realize the objects of their ambition or avarice, they hold in small account the loss of the things of Jesus Christ. That is the churchman of today. I'll turn a blind eye to this. What would that possibly have to do with the Word of God? These red flag laws. Guns. The truth of the matter is, God's Word speaks to all matters of life, including these matters. Do you understand? And when the pulpits are silent and don't speak to them, the status dogs love that kind of Christianity. Because then they're free to spin their web of filth and evil. May the Lord grant repentance to his church in America. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks and praise to you for this time that we had in your word today. I ask that you would use it for good in our hearts and minds, that we would understand your ways and your thoughts better. And may we see clearly that your gospel is for all men, O God. May each one of us consider before you going even to a foreign land to bring people your word, your holy law, and your great salvation. Lord, I ask and pray that each of us would bow our knee before you and consider what you would have us do with our lives and how you would have us to govern them. And may our fealty and love for you be sure in the days ahead. And I ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. May Christ be praised. You can be seated. And we're going to take communion at this time. You can feel free to take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. You don't have to be a member of this church in order to partake at the Lord's table here. But if you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take communion as the Lord's table is only for believers to observe. And here at Mercy Seat, we observe His table every week. And this week is no different. The Apostle Paul wrote of the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We should have been put to death for our sins. That's what the scriptures teach. The wages of sin is death. We should have been put to death. But God in his mercy sent his son as our propitiation to interpose at Calvary on our behalf and take upon himself our sins and the sins of all men, so that if we, or if a man, will turn from his sin and believe in Jesus, he can obtain forgiveness of his sin. Obtain forgiveness of his sin. Think how huge that is. And seize right standing with God. Actually meet with the Father. 
commune with him in prayer, fellowship. And that is why the writer of the Hebrews calls it a great salvation. It is a covenant between us and God through his son, Jesus Christ. It is a new, a better covenant than what preceded it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your salvation. And we thank you that you redeemed us unto yourself. That while we were yet sinners, you loved us. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you transformed us. Making us new creatures in Christ. And Lord, I ask and pray that we would be your faithful servants in the days ahead. That we would stay true to you. That we would not falter due to the fear of man. Lord, we give thanks and praise to you and ask that you watch over us in the days ahead and bring glory to your name through our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. Let's stand up. Father, we rejoice in you and thank you. We praise you. We rejoice in you, O God. Father, we need your strength. We need your goodness. Be with each one here, I pray. Give all of us hearts hungry for you. Help us to do right by you and by right by our homes, O God. May each man here in this congregation do right by you in that regard. May he not take that duty, that responsibility lightly. May he tremble before you in it. Continue to build up the saints. You're at mercy seat, O God. May they do right by you in the earth. And I ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Hallelujah. God bless you.